1954, two things happened that helped shape the future of the Republican Party. One, the GOP lost 18 seats in the House of Representatives, and they became the minority party. And two, a kid named Bill Paxson was born in upstate New York. Bill's parents were both Republicans. His mom was an activist and his dad was a judge. And from the time that he was five years old, they used to take him out and canvas for Republican candidates in their neighborhood. And pretty soon, Bill totally became like that dweeby kid that was obsessed with politics, even at Catholic Boys Summer Camp. I was the only camper in the history of the camp who had the Buffalo News sent to me every day. So I'm 12 years old and I'm reading the paper to follow politics. At 14, he subscribed to the National Review and he joined his school's public speaking team. In high school, Bill was the guy with a picture of Richard Nixon hanging in his locker. Uh, You know, I was totally into politics. To this day, I still am amazed that the other guys in the class didn't, like, dunk me headfirst into a toilet. So yes, Bill was a ride-or-die Republican, even though the party had fallen on hard times. Since the year that Bill was born, the Democrats had held on to control of the Congress. Republicans lost the House in every single election. Democrats stonewalled Republican presidents. They pushed their own liberal agendas. And then, in 1974, things got much worse. Because Watergate happened. Nixon resigned. And three months later, in the 74 midterm election there was a huge backlash against Republicans at every level of office. In the House of Representatives, they lost 49 seats overnight. They lost Senate seats. They lost governorships. They lost every little kind of local election that you can imagine. We lost town boards, village boards, everything. The wake of Watergate was wide and deep. It was was demoralizing. For Bill... The loss was personal. His dad was one of the 12 Republican county judges in the Buffalo area who ran in that election. And every single one of them lost. It was just awful. Election night was just just horrible. I was catatonic. And it just kept going on the next year and the next year. And so 20 years after that election, when nerdy Nixon fanboy Bill Paxton became Erie County legislator Bill Paxson, and then New York State Assemblyman Bill Paxson, and then U.S. Congressman Bill Paxson. He hadn't forgotten that feeling, that yearning to see Republicans in power. And going into the midterm election of 1994, when Bill Paxson was elected chairman of the House Republicans Campaign Committee, he was finally in a position to do something about it. I'm Martine Powers, and this is How to Flip the House, a three-part miniseries from The Washington Post's Can He Do That podcast. We're telling the story of three midterm elections, three surprise upsets that changed the party in control of the House and changed the face of American politics. And we're trying to understand what these wave elections tell us about what could happen in the midterm elections this November. We're talking about the elections of 1994, 2006, and 2010. And for each of these elections, we've compiled data and insightful graphs and archival photos that you can find on 
wapo.st slash how to flip the house. While midterm elections are a big deal today, in 1994, they didn't hold the same drama or significance. Because back then, it was assumed that Democrats would control the House. For four decades, they had never lost. And in the lead-up to the 94 election, there wasn't much reason to think that that would change. President George H.W. Bush had just lost his re-election to Governor Bill Clinton. Republicans were also the minority in the Senate. And around the country, the GOP held fewer governorships and state legislatures than Democrats did. Few people thought that flipping the House was a remote possibility. But Bill Paxson and a few other Republicans had a plan. They knew that Americans were fed up with the way that Democrats were running the country. And in that midterm, they saw an opportunity. An opportunity to shift the heart of the party and to redefine what it meant to be a Republican. But I think for the first time in my lifetime, the first story in the headlines the morning after the election is going to be about Republicans in the House making great and historic gains. And in the end, they didn't just flip the House. They created a prototype for the next two and a half decades of Republican races, developing a hyper-organized, hyper-disciplined, and extremely well-funded campaign machine. And they created a party that stopped getting along with Democrats and started beating them. To win back the House in 94, Republicans needed to gain a net of 42 seats, which is a lot of seats. Like, just for context, this year the Democrats would need to get 24 seats to flip the House. But there was a core group of people who thought that it just might be possible. Haley Barber, dynamite fundraiser, chairman of the Republican National Committee, Representative Dick Armey and strategist Joe Gaylord, engineers of the Republican Revolution, Congressman Tom DeLay, nickname The Hammer. And then there was Newt Gingrich. Liberal Democrats are used to dominating everything in the House. They're used to a generation of being in charge without accountability. They're used to uh, having their way. And I've been one of those people who insisted that we ought to get a fair shake. This would not have happened without Newt Gingrich. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Dan Baltz is a political correspondent for The Washington Post. He covered the 94 House election and ended up co-authoring a book about it and about Newt Gingrich. You might remember Newt from the 2012 presidential race. He was briefly a frontrunner for the Republican nomination. But back in the early 90s, Newt was a congressman from Georgia who had developed a reputation. Why don't you just let us bring a bill to the floor to rival your bill? What is it you are so afraid of that you can't even allow it to be made in order? What is it that so terrifies your leadership that they can't even allow for a fair debate and a fair vote? For most of the 80s, he was a rebel. Um, He was a backbench bomb thrower. An uncompromising conservative who thought of himself as a transformational figure. Hard-charging Republican. A populist hero. The American people have learned painfully that big, thick bills become even bigger and thicker regulations and they lead to long jail terms and then you're actually supposed to obey these laws. He developed something of a cult following on Rush Limbaugh's radio show. And he was a star on C-SPAN, of all places. 
You could tune in and see him on the House floor railing against the, quote, corrupt liberal welfare states or against moderate Republicans that he felt were betraying conservative values. Bipartisanship shouldn't mean that Republicans roll over while Democrats get what they want. A few years before the 94 election cycle, Newt won the party's number two leadership position, Minority Whip. He beat out a more establishment Republican, and he promised to usher in an era of bolder, more assertive GOP leadership. And it was not just an upset, it was kind of the beginning of a revolution. And so he became the architect of the Republican strategy from there forward. And the guy ready to rally behind that strategy was Bill Paxson. Bill, the once gangly, awkward, glasses-wearing, ultra-nerd Bill, he was now a third-term congressman. And people liked him. He was young, he had energy, and he believed that a Republican House takeover was within their reach. And so Bill was elected chairman of the National Republican Congressional Committee, the campaign arm of the House GOP. If Newt Gingrich was the head coach of the Republican takeover, Bill was the offensive coordinator. My gosh, I used a sports analogy. That's unusual. I can't. I never do that. And Bill's job came with one simple mandate. My job was to win elections. That meant recruiting candidates, fundraising for their campaigns, coming up with a cohesive message that could be shared across all of the races. Most of all, his job was to make Republicans believe that they could win. Because by the early 90s, it had been so long since the GOP had been in power in the House, Republicans just kind of accepted it. People just were in that mindset that we couldn't win the majority and wouldn't in our lifetimes. But Bill was ready to go harder than his NRCC predecessors. He wasn't afraid to ruffle the feathers of his Republican colleagues. And he was not about to let warm, fuzzy feelings of bipartisanship get in the way of cold, hard political skullduggery. And the rest of the story will be how Republicans, because of our gains next November, will have helped build a functioning majority in the House of Representatives. When we think of the Republican Party now, we think of the party that knows how to campaign, the party that has consistently out-fundraises Democrats. But back when Bill took over the NRCC, things were different. Well, there was a political complacency of the highest order. The NRCC was near bankruptcy. It was woefully disorganized. And when we got in there, we were told there was a couple million dollars worth of debt and we're opening desk drawers and finding bills that hadn't been paid and it ended up being four or five million dollars. And the whole thing, the whole organization tasked with getting hundreds of people elected to Congress, it relied almost exclusively on mail-in donations, like individual $5 and $10 and $15 checks from this small pool of donors whose age averaged out to be 78 years old. It was like trying to run a Fortune 500 company on big sale money and birthday checks from grandma. You could go on about that forever. The place uh, was on life support. And so it was Bill's job to whip things into shape. And he was clear from the get-go. We're going to have to clean house. We're going to have to fire all these consultants. We're going to have to lay off staff. Which meant he dismissed 100 consultants on retainer and cut the staff from 75 to 25. And now, for the first time, 
members of the House were responsible for one of the core committee tasks, recruiting candidates to run for office. In the past, that had been a big challenge for Republicans. Like For years, they had trouble finding people to oppose Democrats in races around the country, but particularly in the South. But the 94 election was different. 18 months into Bill Clinton's first term, people were having buyer's remorse. There was the sexual misconduct stuff. This was pre-Monica Lewinsky, but Clinton had already faced multiple other accusations. And then there was the president's health care reform plan. A lot of Americans thought that it would be a disaster, and they were willing to run for office to stop it. We had a bunch. We had a whole phalanx of doctors, dentists. They didn't come to ask permission. They would come to Washington to tell us that they were running. All these candidates motivated by Clinton's legislative agenda. So for the first time in history, there were more Republican candidates running in districts around the country than Democrats. We made it our job, even if we had to, in some states, pay people to carry petitions. We got somebody in the ballot against all but 12 Democrats in the country. The problem is they were going to need to find money to fund all of these campaigns. But Bill had a plan. He established the NRCC's first corporate giving program, and he assigned members of Congress with a list of businesses and groups to reach out to. Fortune 500 companies, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the National Federation of Independent Business, the National Restaurant Association. And he sent those members out to deliver a message. If you want fewer regulations and less government interference, you want Republicans to win control of Congress. Corporate America particularly had seen what the Democrats had done. And so we took the show on the road and we took members around the country and we introduced those members to corporate America and uh, major donors. And uh, it was it was quite an effort. Bill also tapped into these little known special interest groups that had been energized by Clinton's agenda. The Christian Coalition opposed Clinton's stance on abortion and gays in the military. The National Rifle Association was just starting to tap into anger about Clinton's proposed assault rifle ban. And they started funneling money into the GOP. Then, finally, Bill did something crazy. Something that would change the game for Republicans and Democrats in years to come. He stopped helping incumbent members with their campaigns. Instead, he started insisting that they donate to his committee to help get new Republicans elected to Congress. The NRCC, and this is just, it's unbelievable. The, the chairman then used to go on the House floor every cycle and hand every Republican member a check for $5,000 for their campaign. The members didn't do any fundraising for the committee. The committee gave them all a check. Well, wait, I mean, what, what's wrong with that? Like, isn't that the point of the NRCC is to be supporting House races? And, you know, you no, give not, not that when you have a member who's not had an opponent in 20 years and you're giving them a check. It's kind of silly. Under Bill's new rules, there were these little pledge cards. And Bill forced members to sign them and say that they donate a certain amount of money to the NRCC. depending on their seniority. We had to drag some members kicking and screaming into it, but... If they didn't sign, Newt and RNC chair Haley Barber moved in. They put the screws to them in true Godfather fashion. 
any member hoping to be considered for leadership after the election would have to go above and beyond and fundraise $50,000 or more for congressional races that were not their own. Even then, members resisted getting involved with the NRCC. And that's about the time that Bill came to realize something. Something that had been tugging at him from the time that he first entered Congress. Some of these Republican members of the House, it was becoming clear to Bill that they didn't mind being in the minority. And that, on some level, they actually kind of liked it. It was easier. It was simpler. They didn't see why Bill and Newt and this ruthless little faction of the party were moving heaven and earth to win the majority. And these more moderate members, they were deeply concerned about what all of this endless fundraising and campaigning and strategizing was going to do to all of their bipartisan partnerships that they'd carefully cultivated over the years. There's no question about it. They were very worried. We went to them and said, you got to get involved now. you got to help us. you got to help recruit candidates in your state. you got to raise money. And they'd say, oh, no, we have a non-aggression pact with the Democrats in our state. I'd say, what? what are you talking about? Florida, Texas, some of these states. We have a non-aggression pact. We won't do anything to defeat them if they don't do anything to defeat us. They said, well, that makes good sense. For them, they're in the majority. As long as you're not hurting them, they're not going to hurt you, and we're going to be in the minority 20 years from now. I mean, we literally had members who refused to do anything to help. And they weren't just worried about derailing their political partnerships. They were worried about losing friendships. Because this was a time when Republicans and Democrats could hang out together. They could get to know each other's families, and they could grab a beer. And they were afraid or concerned that uh, some of their Democratic colleagues wouldn't talk to them again or invite them over for dinner or, you know, give them some scraps off the table in terms of some appropriations or a line in some bill. And Bill had to sit these Republicans down and tell them, look, this is it. This is the line in the sand. This is our year to win the majority. And you have to choose. It's us or them. And ultimately, these members got the message. Because back in 1992, less than a dozen Republican members in the House bothered to donate to the NRCC to help support new candidates. By the beginning of 1994, Bill had donations from 140 members. And he knew just the right place to use them. A special election that, to most people, seemed totally insignificant. Special elections are totally a big deal. They're considered a sign of what's to come in an upcoming midterm. But back in May of 1994, when Kentucky held a special election for an open congressional seat, people were not paying that much attention. A 40-year incumbent Democrat had died, and everyone assumed that his seat would go to another Democrat. In fact, Democrats had held that seat for 129 years. But Newt and Bill and the rest of their crew, they had this idea. They knew that if they could grab that seat, they could show that they had a real shot at winning the House. The Democrats brought out a strong candidate to compete for the seat. 
Joe Prather, a former state senator and state party chairman. The Republicans' choice did not have that kind of political resume. Before we even got in the race, the local party had immediately run a candidate named Ron Lewis. I mean, it literally happened like overnight. They got this candidate. He was a Christian bookstore owner and a Baptist minister. So he had ties to the community, but he had no real experience. Well, he wasn't a local office holder, really had never run for anything. And Bill's job was to figure out whether this guy had any shot at all of winning. And if he did, to figure out how the NRCC could help make that happen. Dan Baltz, the Post reporter, he remembers this all very clearly. Now, that was a district that had Democratic registration in the majority, um, but it had gone for Republicans in some recent presidential elections. The Republicans nominated somebody that many people did not think could win, but when they got the polling back in that district early on, um, the Republican candidate was 15 points behind, which sounds like a lot, but in a special election, uh, the Republicans thought there is a way that we might be able to win this. And so we decided we, we, we got to do this in a stealth way. Bill, RNC Chair Haley Barber, Senator Mitch McConnell of Kentucky, they told everyone who would listen. They didn't think this guy had much of a chance of winning. They weren't going to get involved. They'd just see how things played out in the district. And then they gave the candidate very specific directions. Raise as much as you can. I don't care if it's $25,000, but don't spend it. Don't spend a penny. And at the same time, Bill went to his Republican members of Congress. He gathered them together in a room. Then he got up in front. He actually stood on a chair. And I said, we can win this, but I need everybody in this room to give us a check. I don't care if it's 1000 or $5,000, whatever you can do, but don't talk about the race. In the meantime, the Democratic candidate, Joe Prather, from his vantage point, it seemed like his opponent wasn't even putting up a fight. So there was no point in pouring money into this race or accepting money from political action committees. Prather had this romantic idea about wanting to win on principles and relying solely on the support of his fellow Kentuckians. And so when Bill finally made his move, Joe Prather had no way to defend himself. Dan Baltz remembers what happens next. They knew that the, the key to winning in 1994 was to run against Bill Clinton because the, the Clinton presidency was, was somewhat rocky at that point. They were having problems. And 12 days before the election, they unleashed their secret weapon. It was a campaign ad to end all campaign ads. This genius idea that would drive a stake into the heart of the Democratic Party. The ad started with a still image of Bill Clinton. And then, frame by frame, Clinton's face slowly morphed into the face of the Democratic candidate. The tagline? If you like Bill Clinton, you'll love Joe Pratt. <laughs> I'm sorry, this is insane that this ad actually worked. Now, that's like, been done a thousand times since, but it never been done before. And it was a great commercial. It was great in that it worked. Prather, the Democrat, lost the seat by a 10-point margin. It was stunning. It was a stunning victory. This moment wasn't just significant because it had embarrassed the Democrats in this one special election. 
it provided a blueprint for all the other close congressional races. The anti-Clinton attack ads that were launched across the country got so damaging that Democratic candidates started dissing the president of the United States to salvage their own reputation with constituents. Like, Clinton would go out to campaign rallies in the heartland. And in some cases, the Democrats wouldn't necessarily show up when he arrived. Uh, Or in one case, somebody sat in the audience rather than up on stage with the president. Which sounds crazy for a president that had been voted into office less than two years earlier with 70 percent of the Electoral College. But Democratic candidates were right to be afraid. Because at one point shortly before the election, Clinton went to Pennsylvania to help rally voters for a couple critical congressional races. And the Republicans did polling right after he was there, and they found that their candidates, the Republican candidates, gained ground in the, in the day or two after Clinton had been there. The Republicans had turned dozens of local congressional elections into a referendum on the president. And it was working. In 1994, and in every midterm election after, there's this question that congressional candidates have to answer. How much do you frame your campaign around messaging about the president? Because it can be really tempting to make that your whole campaign. When you have a president who, I don't know, fails to execute on the legislation that he promised, who possesses a penchant for shameless self-promotion, a president who many voters find morally reprehensible and kind of sleazy for the way that he treats women. It's very tempting to make the whole campaign about that president. But Newt Gingrich didn't want to do that. Even as Clinton floundered in approval ratings, Newt wanted to rally GOP voters around a cohesive message that was bigger than just disdain for the president. He wanted to make it clear that being a Republican in America meant something. And two months before the election, they revealed their big concept. I'm Haley Barber. Thank you. Uh, The Republican National Committee is very proud to support the Republican contract with America. The contract with America a list of legislation and reforms that Republicans promised to execute in the first 100 days. This is not just a platform or just a set of ideas or just a brochure. I mean, it was a platform. And they did print it out on little laminated brochures that candidates kept in their jacket pocket and pulled out to show voters. But this platform was much more explicit and detailed and data-driven than anything that had come before it. Now, we believe so deeply that we can deliver something that is very different, that we are prepared to be very specific about what we're doing. They completely ignored every issue that was polarizing within the party, things like abortion rights or the death penalty. Ten bills that we be, will be brought to the floor, bills that have standing with the American people. Every item on the list had polled with at least 70% approval among average Republican voters. The Personal Responsibility Act, denying welfare to teenage moms. The Fiscal Responsibility Act, forcing Congress to pass balanced budgets. The American Dream Restoration Act, with a $500 per child tax credit. We will have family tax cuts. 
The American family needs relief from this burden of taxation. And then there were the internal reforms, ideas that they said would make Congress run better. Bills like, for example, a bill on term limits. They wanted to put 12-year term limits on members of Congress. They wanted to put in place new procedural hurdles that would make it more difficult to raise taxes in the future. We'll cut committee staff by one-third. Hire independent auditors to search the federal government for waste, fraud, and abuse. 367 Republicans running for office that year co-signed the contract. The bottom line is the contract with America represents significant change. This is a firm commitment by Republican members and by our candidates who will be members to reform the way the House does business. It was largely wonky inside baseball stuff, just punctuated with the most unifying elements of the conservative agenda. And most importantly, it sounded good. It sounded like what a change agent would do to make the government run more efficiently. And Bill says that it worked. There's no question at all. The goal was to get the Republican base enthused and fired up and involved. And it did it. And after the platform dropped in September, it was Republicans' jobs to go out and sell it. They had a contract with America rally on the steps of the Capitol. They got Rush Limbaugh to talk about it constantly on his incredibly popular and influential radio show. They printed the whole thing as a multi-page ad in TV Guide magazine, so regular people could tear it out and put it on their refrigerator. Bill was sent to go on tour to sell the contract around the country. And he brought his secret weapon, his wife, Susan Molinari. Um, I mean, that's the job. You're campaigning for something either for your district or to help elect people that you think will be good for the district. Because earlier that year, Bill had gotten married to a fellow member of Congress. Representative Susan Molinari, Republican from Staten Island. She was a rising star in the party. Bright, whip-smart, buoyant. She kind of looked and sounded like Meg Ryan. She'd been a guest on Larry King Live. Bill had proposed to her on the House floor, and People magazine named them one of the top 10 most romantic couples of the year. Yesterday uh, afternoon on the uh, House floor, uh, I uh, made the most important uh, Request of my life on the yeah my most the most important speech I've ever given in 16 years in uh, public office and thank God it was the best received. <laughs> she said yes and here we are. She <laughs> wanted to share the American people something productive. Desikar on the floor of the House of Representatives. Susan became a contract with America emissary. She gave tons of TV interviews explaining why it was so significant. A Post reporter at the time named her the, quote, talk show host of the contract with America. So Susan and Bill postponed their honeymoon to travel the country in the months preceding the election and tell people why they needed to vote Republican that fall. Together, they campaigned in 84 districts and 36 states. You know, when we're on the road, we had a chance to travel together. It wasn't exactly romantic at Two in the morning at the Rochester, Minnesota airport. And Bill describes the whole thing as both exhilarating and also miserable and sometimes very wacky. Like this one time they went to attend a breakfast rally for a candidate in a rural district. Bill wouldn't say which state this district was in. And they're at this Best Western. It's like six, seven in the morning. We both were sick. And the door suddenly flies open and in comes the candidate in his cowboy boots and hunting vest. 
and says as he's walking up, well, we're here today because we got a couple of these people from Washington. They're here. They just got married. It's uh, Bill Paxson and Susan Mananini. Mananini. Well, hell, she's now Susie Paxson. Well, the fingers, my wife's nails went into my thigh, and you have no idea it went downhill from there. During that part of the campaign, Bill thought that he and Susan and the rest of the Republicans were out there really selling the contents of the contract with America. But that wasn't the whole story. And uh, we were in Arizona, and I was doing these radio call-ins around the country or little you know, whoever would have us on. It was, we were desperate for getting publicity. And then one thing I said, just that. Well, you know, yeah, I think they said, are you going to win? Yeah, yeah, things are coming along. We're going to do well. But if we don't win it this time, we sure will in two years. About 20 minutes later, you got to understand, this is before all the social media. This is just, we're in the middle of nowhere. I'm talking to some station in the middle of nowhere. The phone rings. And it was, it was uh, Newt. And Bill says that Newt always had this weird ability of getting a hold of people on the phone in situations that you would never expect. Bill, where are you? How's it going? Good, good, good. He said, hey, I heard you said uh, this on the radio. Yeah, oh, yeah, okay. You know, it's like getting the teacher catching you. You know, I said, well, you know, he goes, now, Bill, you know, you know better than that. We, we're going to win this this time. I said, you're right, Newt. I'll never say it again, I promise. And boy, I never did after that either. But uh, he was right. You know, and, and part of Newt's job as the chief cheerleader was exactly that, is keeping everybody focused. Don't let anybody let their guard down. And if we, you know, we just got to we just got to have a phalanx of people all saying the same thing, feeling the same way, marching together, and we can win this. Because the thing about the contract with America is this. It turns out that nobody actually cared about the details of exactly what it promised. Dan Baltz points out in his book that only one-third of voters polled on Election Day said that they'd ever even heard of the contract with America. But it was effective because it was selling confidence, giving voters and candidates the confidence that Republicans really could win this thing. And for the record, Newt... He never wavered in his confidence. Well, I think, it, I mean, by the time you got into October, um, it was pretty clear that, you know, that the majority was in the balance. Um, you know, again, more cautious prognosticators were saying, you know, that the Republicans are going to make big gains. But it just, I mean, it looked like the bar was so high to take over that they could still fall short. Um, but I remember being out with Gingrich in October of 94, and a, a reporter said to him, you know, if you win and you become majority leader, and he stopped him and said, speaker, I'd be speaker. Election night, November 8th, 1994. All the polls show that the Republicans are going to win some seats, but it's unclear just how many and if it's going to be enough. Bill Paxson is confident that he's going to be reelected in his home district, but he starts his day in Buffalo just to put in some face time with his constituents. Then he flies back to Washington to NRCC headquarters. Got off the plane here, it was like 7.30 or so, and the results started coming in from those first states, Kentucky and Indiana. They had won seats in both those states. Bill left the airport to head to the NRCC headquarters, 
And by the time he walked into his office, it was like the floodgates had opened. Seats all over the eastern and central time zones were being called for Republicans. And it just kept snowballing. And where we thought we might win, maybe sneak across the finish line, 219, 220 seats, we suddenly are up, you know, way beyond that. To this day, Bill remembers this as one of the most remarkable nights of his life. We picked up seats we never, I mean, like, who are these candidates? <laughs> you know, races we never thought we were going to win. And we were just up all night. I mean, it was one after the other. And you get a call from governor, then elect governor, Pataki. Uh, he couldn't believe it. We couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe he won. We couldn't believe we won. And it just kept going. In the end, they won control of the House, picking up 54 seats. That was way more than the 42 that they'd needed, a number that had once felt unthinkable. They won eight seats in the Senate, and Republicans became the majority there, too. And it really was like a Republican wave. Around the country, they increased the number of GOP state governors by 12, and they became the majority in 20 state legislatures. The first time in 50 years that more than half of the country's state senates, state houses, state assemblies were controlled by Republicans. Bill's wife, Susan Molinari, became the new vice chair of the Republican Congressional Committee. And for Bill? Bill, who had kept up with political news at summer camp, who subscribed to the National Review at 14, who'd been waiting literally since the year he was born for Republicans to be in the majority again, for him, the wave truly felt like he'd fulfilled this promise to himself and to his dad. It was the closing of the door on the Watergate era, because even from Watergate on, that just hung over. You know, it hung over me, it hung over us as a party. It was just an absolutely unbelievable uh, moment in time. You kind of wish you could freeze those four or five hours from the time the first polls closed till, you know, the West Coast uh, was all done. And you could just relive it minute by minute. And Newt, Newt, who had known from the beginning that it was possible, he was all business on election night. Newt was down in Georgia, his home district, and, and uh, by, you know, by the time that was clear they were going to win. He was doing round after round of interviews on TV and radio. And finally, in the wee hours of the morning, cameras are turned off, the reporters are packing up. And it's like he finally has a moment to breathe, and he kind of goes, you know, arms get thrown up, and he slaps his knees, and he goes, incredible. <laughs> and that was, I think, his real reaction. That I mean, there's this moment he had dreamed about, uh, and yet it was like, oh my gosh, it actually happened. What were the reactions from Democrats? Stunned. I mean, they were absolutely stunned. They could not believe what had happened. Uh, they were angry. They were angry at one another. Um, there were recriminations afterwards. We were held accountable yesterday, and I accept my share of the responsibility in the result of the elections. And, and frankly, I mean, it, it was like Bill Clinton's presidency just ran into a brick wall. I mean, they knew that at that point, Bill Clinton was going to have to operate completely differently than he had in the first two years. Clinton's most significant goal for his first term, reforming the nation's health care system, that was not going to happen. Instead, Clinton was forced to lean into a much more conservative agenda. 
He took new steps to decrease the budget deficit. He put his energy toward welfare reform. He agreed to sign the Defense of Marriage Act, preventing same-sex partners of federal employees from receiving benefits. And the most significant consequence of flipping the House wasn't immediately apparent. Because several years and a couple elections later, the House continued to be controlled by Republicans. And they were able to impeach a sitting president for only the second time in U.S. history. I have accepted responsibility for what I did wrong in my personal life. And I have invited members of Congress to work with us to find a reasonable, bipartisan, and proportionate response. That approach was rejected today by Republicans in the House. But I hope it will be embraced by the Senate. But right after the 94 midterm, it seemed to Democrats like the worst part wasn't just losing the majority, it was losing the majority to Newt who was, of course, elected Speaker of the House. When we and the president can agree, we ought to get things signed. When we and the president deeply disagree, we ought to get things vetoed. Uh, But wherever possible, we should cooperate without compromise. And he had enemies in the Democratic Party um, who saw him as a a terribly destructive force uh, who would usher in a very, very bad period of real partisan politics because he had operated that way in a very partisan way toward toward the Democrats when he was a backbencher. Because the backbench bomb thrower could now throw bombs from the front row. The contract with America got some modest success. We are very clear in our contract. We are today going to do what we promised to do. Newt was able to pass a lot of internal reforms, but most of his big pieces of promised legislation never got passed in the Senate. Newt was far more effective at creating disruption. His conservative revolution was the catalyst for a long-term shift toward the right among House Republicans. He incited a government shutdown twice, and he enraged some other members of Congress by shaking up the way of doing business, like putting freshmen on these sought-after committees or encouraging people to fundraise for the party by rewarding them with committee chairs. It's not just seniority anymore to be a committee chair. It's going to be I've got to go out, and what do you want me to do now? Help you raise money, I'll do it. Help you recruit candidates, I'll do it. And play in the policy arena, okay, what do you want me to do? Now it just wasn't the old boys' network. It was a lot of fire-breathing young members on those committees. And for Bill personally, 94 was a game-changer. A couple days after the election, the New York Times wrote this big profile of him, and they called him, quote, one of the chief architects of the political coup. Republicans talked about how he'd redefine the role of NRCC chair. His only criticism in that article came from Democrat Louise Slaughter, who said, quote, Legislation does not interest him. His interest is just to rid the world of Democrats. He puts politics above policy. Which, at the time, sounded like sour grapes. But looking back, she kind of seems to have a point. Because four years after that election... Bill made an announcement. Ladies and gentlemen, these past few weeks have been the toughest decision time in my life, but it's also the easiest decision time in my life. When Bill announced that he was resigning from Congress, there were all these reports about how he'd had this power struggle with Newt, that he thought the speaker was becoming too extremist. Bill dismissed that all as gossip. He said that the truth was that he and Susan had had their first kid, 
Susan had already given up her seat in Congress to spend more time at home, and he wanted to do the same. But when you talk to Bill about it now, it kind of seems like he was the dog that finally caught the car. He'd achieved this goal that he'd been dreaming of literally since he was a kid. And nothing else in Congress seemed as exciting. This was what I intended to do forever. And part of it was because I thought it would take forever for us to get in the majority. And part of it was, I don't want to go back to the backbench of being a committee member and working my up the seniority ladder over the next 20 years. I just didn't want to wait that long. Plus, I'm not the, I, policy is very important to me, but grinding out the legislative sausage is not. Instead, Bill became a lobbyist. Which makes sense, because he, more than anyone, knew how to use money to make things happen in Congress. And over the next two decades, he helped develop a modern-day lobbying industry that was far more robust and effective than ever before. He represented energy companies trying to ease federal restrictions. He worked for pharmaceutical companies to influence drug policy. He represented the tire manufacturer Bridgestone Firestone in the wake of their deadly tire recall. Before he retired, Bill was reported to be earning upwards of a million dollars a year as a lobbyist. And that brings us to the present day. Because you might notice a recurring theme in Bill's career. Rallying congressmen to seek out donations from the NRA and special interests. Lobbying for multi-billion dollar corporations. He's the guy who brought money into Congress, who helped turn political campaigns into a fundraising arms race. Or at least that's how I framed it to Bill. To which his response was, money has always been wrapped up in politics. He said that in the years before 94, he used to see corruption in action in Congress all the time. Members secretly collecting huge sums of money from lobbyists. Let's be honest. The culture of Washington was, if you don't rock the boat, you can make a lot of money, It's not a good system, and I think people would be shocked to realize how those good old days really weren't good old days. Bill says that he helped bring those interactions between lobbyists and congresspeople above board. And yes, he said, it does take money to be successful in politics. Uh, Raising funds comes with a job. If you're not willing to pick up the phone or if you're not willing to do what has to be done— Uh, You're not going to win. I'm a passionate guy on, uh, you know, if you're reading the National Review when you're 14 years old or getting the Buffalo News sent to your summer camp, you know, uh, there's a reason. I love the campaign side, but I was a true believer. I was a true believer in the philosophical issues and how we were going to change the direction of the country. But you can't do it if you don't win elections. But when I asked Dan Baltz about this, he said that the changes from 1994 weren't just about the amount of outside money from big corporate donors that were flowing into Congress. It was about how Congress as a governing body changed to match that money. Politicians got more extreme. It was less lucrative for a member of Congress to be politically centrist. You could bring in more money from outside interests if you were on the far left or the far right. And bipartisanship started to evaporate precisely because after 1994, things got a lot more competitive. Dan says that there was no longer this assumption that power shifts in Congress would be modest and incremental. Instead, 
every election cycle became this mad dash fight to the death over control of the House. But I think one of the things as a result of 94, and we've seen it, we've seen it continually since that time, is the idea that the House could be in play in every election. In other words, if you are if you are the out party, there is a possibility that you could be the in party after the next election, particularly after the midterm. And I think that that, in addition to a lot of other things, has contributed to the kind of politics we've seen since then, which is to say, um, you know, governing in the House or governing in general is aimed at much at putting yourself in the best position possible to win the next election, as opposed to finding ways to work across the aisle to get certain things done. So there was less incentive to work together. Why try to compromise when you can be as obstinate as possible and cross your fingers that in two years, you'll be the one with all the power to do exactly what you want? And I think that 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 was much less a factor pre-94 than it has been since 94. Like, you think about the rancor and the lack of cooperation in Congress right now, particularly around issues that used to be grounds for bipartisanship. Things like infrastructure or environmental protections or legal rights for immigrants who are brought to the U.S. as children. Even these issues have become political non-starters. And I asked Bill, is that the legacy of the 94 elections? Did his unrelenting push to win back the House break something about Congress? So I think the notion that Congress used to be this nice collegial place where everybody got along, and now it's contentious. I think it's a lot of BS. And let me tell you why. You had the Democrats been in control for 40 years. They treated those Republican members like some, you know, wealthy, aristocratic uh, British family that their kids are off to boarding school and they come home and they say, oh, look, there's our little children over there. Pat them on the head, go to bed. That's the way Republicans were treated in the Congress. They got nothing but the scraps off the table and not many scraps. Yeah, they were friends and their kids played in the softball leagues. Everybody lived here in Washington. Oh, that's all wonderful. But did they get anything for it? Nothing. To me, that's not the way people expect a legislative body to operate. Look, in the 1800s, people used to come to blows on the House floor. Uh, and I, you know, I'm not saying we that's good, but I think people are sent there to stand up and fight for their positions, not to go out to dinner with somebody else. And when he looks back at the 94 election, that's one of the things that he feels most proud of, making the House more competitive, setting up a world where every midterm is a fight for control, where the stakes of winning feel urgent, and where both parties recognize the advantage of being organized and on message. Competitive races is a good thing. It's what the it's what the founding fathers would want. And we had a long period of time when the Congress changed parties regularly. And, you know, I, I, I don't see a problem with that at all. And it makes sense that Bill would say that. Because if there's anything that he learned from his experience plotting to overthrow the Democrats, it's this. When a political party holds power for too long, people start to get complacent. They start thinking that Maybe they'll just hold on to the majority forever. They stop fighting so hard. And when that happens, it opens up an opportunity for someone on the other side. Someone who's hungry, who's desperate for a win. And that's what Bill was thinking in 2004 
10 years after the Republican Revolution, when he heard that the Democrats had elected this young, mouthy junior congressman from Illinois to head up their congressional campaign committee and try to take back control of the House. There were a lot of Republicans who thought, eh, you know, he's not that, you know, he's a smart-ass, wisecrack, and thinks he's tough. But Bill recognized this guy. Back in the late 80s, this guy had actually been a staffer for a Democratic candidate in a race that Bill had almost lost. Bill knew that this guy was smart and wily and hungry to win. Because at that moment, young Congressman Rahm Emanuel reminded Bill a little of himself. I said, uh, guys, I encourage you to take this with all due seriousness. That's on the next episode of How to Flip the House. One more thing. Right after ushering in the 94 election and fulfilling his lifelong dream of winning back the House, Bill finally got to go with Susan on their long-postponed honeymoon. Two days later, we left to go on our honeymoon, and we went to the Caribbean to an island where there was no communication or anything, and there was no way to get a call in or out. Obviously, this was a time before everyone had cell phones, but there was a phone in the hotel room for room service and such. And uh, the Friday morning, my wife walked down to the beach and the phone rang. And it was, uh, and you can hear just barely, uh, Bill, it's Newt. Uh, where, where are you? I said, well, we're on our honeymoon, Newt. Good, good. We're going to start our leadership meeting now. I'm going to put the speaker on, speakerphone on. To this day, Bill says that he has no idea how soon-to-be Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich found their rustic little resort on this remote Caribbean island. But Newt was insistent that Bill join in on the leadership meeting. Here's how dumb I was. I said, okay. Go ahead. Let's do this. So I'm there. So my wife came in and Susan said, what are you doing? I said, oh, I got leadership meeting. And she's like rolling her eyes. She goes, okay, have fun. So this goes on for like five hours. And the next day, Congresswoman Molinari sat her husband down. She said, now listen, just understand this. If that phone rings and you answer it, this is going to be the shortest honeymoon and the shortest marriage you can imagine. The next day, the phone did ring and Bill did not answer. been How to Flip the House, a special audio miniseries from the Washington Post's Can He Do That podcast. To learn more about this miniseries and about the story of the 1994 midterm election, check out wapo.st slash how to flip the house. There we've got more behind the scenes data and historical context and archival information that will help you dive deeper into the midterms. I want to thank our guests on today's show, Dan Baltz and Bill Paxson. And in the process of researching the story, one resource that was extremely helpful was a book by Dan Baltz and Ronald Brownstein, Storming the Gates, Protest Politics and the Republican Upheaval. So I'd encourage you to check it out if you're curious to learn more about the 1994 midterm elections. This story was reported and written by me, Martine Powers. It was produced by Carol Alderman with editorial oversight from Jess Stahl. 
Ted Muldoon produced the prologue to this series, and he wrote the Can He Do That theme song. Kat Rudell Brooks designed the art for this series. Ruben Fischerbaum and Kazi Awal created the beautiful accompanying page for this miniseries, which, again, you can find at wapo.st slash howtoflipthehouse. Special thank you for editorial insights from Dave Clark and Lillian Cunningham. And this series would not have been possible without the support of Mike Semmel and Victoria Benning. And I'd also like to give a special shout out to Fez Siddiqui and Colin Pope for their help and encouragement. If you'd like to hear more political stories from The Washington Post, check out other episodes of Can He Do That? A podcast about the powers and limitations of the American presidency. You can find an episode archive at wapo.st slash can he do that. And can he do that is also available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. 